Hello, everyone, and welcome to our The Week That Was in Europe podcast. My name is Dirk Schumacher. I'm the head of European Macro Research at Natixis, and with me, as usual, is Klaus Adam, Professor of Economics at the University of Mannheim. So, hello also from my side. Uh, today, we have the great pleasure to have with us Martin Arnold. So, Martin is the Bureau Chief of the Financial Times in Frankfurt, and his commentary and analysis in the Financial Times about the euro area and monetary policy in particular are mandatory reading. So welcome to the show, Martin. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, before starting the conversation with you, Martin, let's have a quick look at the latest euro area macro data that has come out, Dirk. Yeah, it was a rather light week in terms of data, but one I think that is important also in the context of uh, monetary policy, which is the employment numbers for the fourth quarter. Employment was up 0.5 on the quarter in Q4 after 1% increase in Q3, and employment level of employment is now above its pre-pandemic level. That, that clearly is a good sign and shows that the recovery continues. And also, uh, vacancies are at a record high, i.e. companies report they find it increasingly difficult to hire people. So some kinds of overheating of the uh, labor market and the wage growth still remains uh, quite moderate. Uh, that, that doesn't need to be the, the case going forward, given the, the strength here of employment we see, which brings us right away to, to our first question for Martin. Right. So, Martin, your job here really is, uh, you know, as a writer and uh, uh, follower of ECB policy to try to explain to your readers what the ECB is uh, trying to achieve. So, generally speaking, uh, are you happy with how the ECB communicates? Uh, I, I would say that a few things on that. Um, I think that they are they are they are improving their communication um and i think under uh, president christine lagarde they are getting better as this crisis has gone on at communicating their position and their views and their their likely actions to the market they had a they had a very difficult start to the crisis um everyone remembers Christine Lagarde's comments that uh, the ECB was not there to close the spreads and that had an immediate market reaction which they had to then respond to um, and and seemingly uh, change tax. I think it was a throwaway remark but it was it was very unfortunate um, and I, I, I still think there are problems with the ECB's communication and there are various ideas that we could discuss about how they could improve them because Communication sounds a bit sounds a bit light and a bit woolly and fluffy, but actually it's it's essential, as you know, for for a central bank to to, to build confidence and and a certain amount of trust. Right. And they will do what they've said they will do. Otherwise, what's the point of them communicating at all if we don't believe anything they say? Um, and and giving guidance to um, investors, to companies, to consumers. Um, so that everybody knows what to expect in terms of pricing, in terms of the cost of money. These are all incredibly important things for the direction of the economy. Um, and, and I think the, you know, if you look at the last press conference that Christine Lagarde did, I'm, you know, I think, it, I think the message came across uh, as, as intended that they were, they had changed their view on 
inflation and they were more concerned about it and that they were likely to take some kind of action uh, in the March um, meeting. But there's still there's perhaps still a lot of confusion over the way that the ECB and Christine Lagarde uh, communicates that message. It's not it's not crystal clear to the market. So you then have a lot of volatility, a lot of questioning. When are they going to raise rates? Are they going to raise rates you know, aggressively? How quickly are they going to stop asset purchases? All of these things are uncertain. And, and ECB seems to try and give itself a lot of leeway. And one way that people have suggested they could um, address some of this uncertainty is to provide a dot plot, as the Fed does, uh, which they don't do, and they never have done at the ECB. But, but that might give people more of a, a clear idea of where they expect the interest rate path to go. Um, it might have been quite a boring bop, dot plot for the last decade or so, because um, most of them wouldn't have expected any movement at all. But but still, I think it's now it's definitely very relevant as 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 markets are expecting them to to raise interest rates several times this year alone. Um, right. So 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 yeah. So 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 more calendar based guidance, which which you know is is an idea people have come up with, and maybe they will do that now on asset purchases and say actually, you know, asset purchases will end on on this date and be a bit more clear about that because even even in December they. They only they, they did provide calendar based guidance in terms of the the step by step reduction in asset purchases, but they left it open ended. They didn't provide a, a clear date as to when they would uh, stop asset purchases. So so it wasn't really a tapering announcement in December. So so I think there's still room for improvement. Sorry, I interrupted you, Klaus. No, no, sorry, I I interrupted. So, I, so there was certainly a dichotomy in terms of the communication at the last press conference between the statement they issued and then what came in the press conference. There was just a huge gap, and I think it was easy to get confused on that. So, so besides the dot plots, um, I mean, that sort of you you can't individuate, uh, you know, identify individual members <clears throat> from that, but. Obviously, not all members in the governing council are equally important. Um, I guess you follow most of them closely, but you know which ones are the ones that really you listen to most carefully. So I, I would I would say I listen to the members of the executive board most carefully. So there's six of them. Uh, I, it's not to say I don't listen to the other nineteen. I, I do. Um, and I think some of those are perhaps more important than than, than others. But of the of and of the executive board, I, I think the, the three most important, clearly Lagarde is, is important. Um, although she rarely she rarely provides speeches or interviews that uh, set uh, the course uh, of uh, or change the course of monetary policy at the ECB in a way that Mario Draghi often did. He was often at the forefront of uh, and led the ECB in a certain direction and, and anticipated where it was going to go and almost set the course and expected everyone to follow him. Uh, Christine Lagarde has a different style, more consensus-based. So you, you rarely see Christine Lagarde um, change uh, anticipations, change expectations on ECB policy with, with speeches or, or or interviews that she gives, she's more about trying to kind of sum up what the consensus is and, and express that 
um, as best as best she can. I would say the two executive board members that are that are most influential and that do uh, come out with 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 agenda setting commentary are, are um, Philip Lane, the chief economist, of course, and Isabel Schnabel, um, who is is head of um, market operations. So. And I recently interviewed Isabel Schnabel, just a little plug, um, and I thought her comments were, again, uh, as they always seem to be, very interesting. It was slight, slightly more hawkish than perhaps the rest of the executive board, but talking about, um, in particular, I thought talking about house prices and how, even though the um, owner-occupied housing costs are not included in, in the inflation data that the ECB targets, um, she said that the governing council could not ignore the um, unprecedented rise in housing costs recently and had to take that into account when deciding um, you know, how seriously to react to, to the current high levels of inflation. And I think that's, that's, very, that's very interesting and again provides you know, a sort of signal as to the direction of, of travel at the, at the governing council. You also report on the, the cyclical developments in, in the euro area, and, and obviously macro data matter a lot for, for policy decisions. And are you, are you generally able to translate the macro data as they are published, as they come out, into what does it mean now for monetary policy? Or to be more specific, do you understand the ECB's reaction function, i.e. data come in, that's what they will probably do with that? I would say that it's it's pretty easy when you have such a clear message from the data as we've had uh, at the start of this year. So I think that at the start of this year, there were three things that came out of the data that sent a very clear message that um, the economy was heating up faster than expected, was doing better than expected, the labour market was doing better than expected, and inflation was 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 higher than expected. So the inflation data uh, for, for uh, January was obviously a new record. It had been expected to fall. It actually rose. Unemployment fell uh, to a new record low in the Eurozone, and the Omicron um, uh, variant of the coronavirus um, seemed to be having a weaker impact on the overall economy than had initially been been been, been feared. So, so those three things, I think, really, uh, you know, those were very clear combined, were very clear signal that the ECB uh, position previously saying this inflation spike is transitory; it's going to fade back down below two percent before the end of the year. And, um, you know, we're as worried about upsides as we are on downsides on, on inflation. Uh, I, I think that um, was no longer, they, they couldn't really stick to that any, any, any longer. It, it, just, it just seemed increasingly untenable. But, but I would say that, you know, not every piece of, of data is, is, is so clear. Um, you know, if you get, uh, this, this week we've had, Eurozone industrial production. I mean that that tends to be lumpy. You know, it's it's hard to read, and it's just only twenty five percent of the twenty percent of the eurozone economy. So I'm not dismissing. Obviously, um, eurozone industry is very important, but you you can't get much out of that in terms of the direction of monetary policy. Um, but yeah, I think I think 
you know, in this case, this is a great example of how the data changed the views uh, among the the rate setters at the at the ECB in in a in a very clear direction. But that means you knew that already ahead of the, the press conference. Sawing the inflation number, you were quite confident that there would be a change of tone. Of course, how much? That's, that's always. But it was clear they can't just ignore these data. And given past behavior, that that was a not a game changer. Maybe it was a game changer. But you knew that ahead. You were not surprised in itself by the by this hawkish pivot. I wasn't. No. I mean, I think that um, I think it was inevitable that. Christine Lagarde was going to get asked the same question that she got asked in December, which is, you know, do you think the ECB is likely to raise interest rates in 2022 uh, as the market is pricing in? And do you think the market has got ahead of itself in pricing in, in betting on that? Um, and that was bound to be the number one question. And as I said, it just seemed given all of that data, it just seemed increasingly untenable for her to continue to say, no, it's highly unlikely that we will raise interest rates this year and the market's got way ahead of itself. We still think inflation is going to come down below our target by the end of this year. And we, you know, we, we think we still need to maintain an accommodative stance, which, which was their position in December. I think the data that came out, not just the inflation, surprisingly high inflation data, But as I said, also the labor market. I think actually maybe the labor market was was more important the, than the uh, the than than the inflation data because I think that showed that um, that there there is now uh, a tightening in the labor market. And and you mentioned the, the the data on shortages as well and how you know record numbers of companies in the EU are reporting that labor shortages is the is the primary constraint. On, on output for them now, not demand. And, and so, you know, it's, it, that makes it much more likely that we're going to see these so-called second round effects and that we are going to see wages start to rise in the Eurozone, which is always a lagging indicator, but the central bank has to anticipate that. They can't wait until they actually see wages going up four or 5%. It'll be too late for them to act by that stage. They need to anticipate that this is coming. The conditions are set for that to happen and then they need to start to change policy in anticipation of that um, and I think the conditions are, are are ripe for that that to happen now so it's time for them to start to gradually normalize policy now I'm not saying I predicted everything that happened in the meeting and and it was you know but there was very a clear decision among the governing council for them for them via the press conference to communicate that they had changed in their reaction function to to the data. Right. So there's, of course, a lot of uncertainty now going forward about inflation. We don't know whether uh, the wage increase is going to happen, how big it's going to be uh, and uh, all that. So what's your take? Some argue that the ECB is already behind the curve in sort of starting to get higher with inflation being high, in interest rates being negative, and therefore real rates being very much into negative territory still. And others argue that it would be a mistake uh, to embark prematurely on tighter monetary policy than what has been announced, say, in December, where they said, yeah, no interest rate hike whatsoever this year. 
So what's what's your view? Where where do you find yourself on this spectrum? Well, this is the this is the trillion dollar question, or I, I, maybe I should say that the four point eight trillion euro question. Um, but this this is this is the big one, and I would say two things. I would say that I think the ECB realized that it was slightly behind the curve um, as a result of its decisions in December. So leaving asset purchases open-ended, um, you know, committing to continue them at least until October, basically ruling out, all but ruling out, an interest rate rise in 2022. I think they realized that they were, they had, they had locked in a more, an excessively dovish course for monetary policy, given um, the signals that were coming from from the eurozone economy, as as I, as I said earlier, so so I think that's that's definitely clear. I, I would make the point that um, the ECB's under the new strategy that they agreed, and and then that the, the the way that they changed their forward guidance last summer as a result of their new strategy is a lot clearer. It's pretty clear they have set what I call uh, a triple lock of conditions that have to be filled for them to raise interest rates. So they need to be forecasting that inflation is at their target 2% by the middle of their forecast horizon. So roughly a year, a year and a half out from where we are now. It has to stay there for the rest of the forecast horizon. So it has to be there for another year or so. And it also underlying inflation. So core inflation has to be you know, consistent with hitting their target. So it's got to be up near 2% as well. Um, and the, the, the final thing is that they, they need to have stopped asset purchases first. So that would say that they're not going to wait until they've fulfilled those conditions before they stop asset purchases, because they need to have stopped asset purchases once they fill, fulfill those conditions so that they can raise interest rates. So I think all of that's that's quite, I mean, it's it's a little bit convoluted, but it's nowhere near as convoluted as they had before, which was this rather ridiculous close to but below 2%, which nobody really knew what that meant. Um, there was a lot of ambiguity in there. So I think they have this fairly clear um, guidance. And I think then, then it just comes down to whether you believe their forecasts on inflation. Now, um, they haven't exactly uh, had a brilliant record at the ECB of forecasting inflation. But then in the past two years, who has exactly. a record of, of forecasting inflation? So it's a little bit unfair, I think, as some people are, to point to how they have just completely, um, you know, um, misread the, uh, the future path of inflation over the past two years, because everybody has. Um, and I think that um, they aren't particularly you know, worse than, than other people. Um, they, I would also say that the um, people tend to kind of read across from the Fed and perhaps a little bit the Bank of England onto the ECB. And uh, they tend to sort of look at the Fed and see how the Fed is reacting to what's going on in the US economy. And so why is the ECB being slower to react? And But I think there are differences. I mean, the, the US labor market is much hotter. I mean, it, it just is. Uh, the, the U.S. economy is, 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 has recovered much quicker from the, from the coronavirus than the Eurozone economy has. And I think also underlying that, there is 
the history, the, the last 10 years at the ECB, they're still a little bit scarred by the last time they raised interest rates in 2011, which everybody now sees as a, as a mistake and, and, and obviously had to be reversed within a few months of, of doing it because the Eurozone uh, debt crisis erupted. Um, and they then had pretty much a decade of a very low inflation, well below their target and struggling to get it up to their target. So they are worried still about going back to that, uh, that kind of environment. Um, and as you said, that there's the concern of them making a mistake. I don't think it would be a mistake to end asset purchases in the next uh, six months and to potentially raise interest rates a little bit before the end of the year. Uh, Normalising policy, getting back to a stage where they're no longer doing net asset purchases at the ECB and their interest rates are back close to zero, it's hardly radical tightening. Uh, and they're making this point. They say normalisation, not monetary tightening. And I think I think it's a fair point because what the Fed is talking about, the Fed's interest rates are already at zero. So they're talking about increasing them up to one, one and a half percent in the next year or so. Um, they're, they're talking about quantitative tightening. In other words, selling the bonds that they bought. The ECB is not talking about that. The ECB is talking about just normalising policy and getting back to the point where they're at zero and they're not buying uh, any extra bonds. And then from there, they can use interest rates uh, if they need to, to continue to cool the economy if it's 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 running too hot. But I think so. I think that is fair enough. And I think that's that's what they're going to do, probably, unless things, you know, events come along and, and, and the data shows a, a, a sharper cooling than, than they'd expected. Yeah, but do you think well, in the other direction, there is a chance of inflation heating up so much that they will have to throw overboard all those promises they made about the sequencing, about the timeframes of uh, purchases? And uh, is there a chance, uh, would there be a point where they would get scared so much that uh, that would have to be abandoned? Do you think that could happen? I guess so, but you know what's going to cause that, Klaus? I think you know maybe if there is a war in Ukraine and the gas price shoots up and the oil price shoots up, and we start to see inflation going from five percent up to seven, eight, nine percent in the eurozone. But then, in that case, as um, Isabel Schnabel said in, in, in my interview with her and and others have at the ECB, Christine Lagarde has said the same thing. If that happens, there's going to be a pretty serious impact on the Eurozone economy. So there's going to be also, a, um, you know, a, a dampening of growth and a, and a hit to confidence and, and, a, and a shock to output as well caused by all of that. So is that the right time for them to then accelerate um, monetary tightening um, in the face of that? Possibly. No, not. it's very um, difficult, but but we know that these sort of shocks, and actually we had a, a podcast last week about forecasting inflation, we know that these sort of shocks have the potential to feed through onto inflation expectations, long-term inflation expectations. And that's why it could be optimal nevertheless, if you see that happening at least, uh, you know, to react, even though it is, of course, not uh, very desirable in terms of the current situation. Yeah, I, I think it would put them in, in in an unenviable, even more unenviable position at the ECB if, if that scenario was to play out. Um, 
But I think that's why it's important for them to try and normalise policy now um, before they are faced with that that very difficult situation. Um, and I think that's what's going to happen um, in three weeks' time, that they will, they will set up a much uh, quicker path for re removing the stimulus that they have had in place um, to combat the pandemic. But I, I, I think the scenario that you outline is, um, is less of a concern in the Eurozone than it is in the US and to a slightly lesser extent in the, in the UK. But, but it's, it's not, I wouldn't say it's, it's the most likely scenario here in the Eurozone looking at the, looking at the data. I, I, don't see, I don't see the Eurozone economy as, as, as uh, you know, being over, massively overheating and being, you know, just kind of, I, prices are very high. It's mainly uh, f um, energy prices and, and some food prices. Uh, the labour market is, is, has improved quicker than people thought, but, but wages are not going up um, at, at, at very um, significantly at all. So I think it's still a very different situation here in the Eurozone. We are a long way from that scenario that you, you paint there where you say, you know, it's, it's um, runaway inflation, um, massively overheating. They need to slab on the brakes, um, cool everything down, you know, basically remove the punch bowl or throw it away. I mean, they, they, they're, not, they're not faced with that scenario. So I think it's, as far as I can see, um, maybe we will, you know, we'll get to an energy price shock if, if there is a, and the most likely cause of that would be conflict in Ukraine, unfortunately. Um, however, even there, I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's clear that they, you know, they, they, they would then react as, 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 as you, as you say they might have to. Sorry, that's not particularly clear, but I, but I, I just think it's, um, it's very difficult to read what would happen in that scenario because we don't know what would happen to growth. We don't know what would happen to confidence. We don't know what would happen to energy prices. We don't know what would happen to, to the Eurozone economy as a result of that scenario. One thing that's specific uh, of the ECB uh, whole setup is that uh, people from different countries come together, make monetary policy in principle for the whole of the euro area. But I guess th uh, their views are always colored by what's happening in their home countries. Um, a, would you agree that's the case? And B, is, is that a problem? And, and yeah, how much of a problem if, if it happens? Well, well, of course it happens. Um, and and there are you know there are there it would be um, be amazing if 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 the Spanish central bank or the Italian central bank had a super hawkish um, governor that was 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 coming out and, and arguing for um, the kind of tightening that that, that Klaus was suggesting um, we have um, I, you know it's never going to happen and and there's and that would you know it'd be it'd be very strange if it did but but it, i don't think it's fair to say that they're all just going into bat for their national interests because um i'll give you a couple of examples there so for instance um belgium isn't seen as a particularly hawkish country but pierre Wunsch, uh the uh, governor of the belgian central bank has been one of the most hawkish voices on the governing council in the past year he was one of the few that uh, came out uh, and opposed the uh, criticized and opposed the, the the new guidance on interest rates um and he was one of the dissenting voices uh, in december saying that they should be tightening 
um, more quickly. Um, but in contrast, Finland is, is you know, one of the, the north countries of the north, uh, seen as pretty hawkish, I would say. But Oli Rehn is more centrist um, and actually can be quite dovish sometimes in his views on monetary policy. So, so I don't think it's, it's fair to, to say that they all go into bat for their their national interests. Um, however, you know, they, there are obviously some, some pretty strong um, national stereotypes that, 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 um, that, that are confirmed um, more often than not. Um, yeah, but, but if it's, I, don't, I, don't think, I, I don't think it's as simple as, as, as saying that they're all just representing their, their um, you know, the finance ministry position. How many camps, as a, as a follow-up question to that one, do you see in the governing council or are there fixed camps and well, camps change a lot in terms of the number and, and composition? Well, for, for many years there was, um, there were there were maybe two or three hawkish voices on the governing council um, and then maybe, you know, three, four, five or centrist voices, uh, and and then the rest were pretty dovish, um, and I think that's that's changing. I think there's far more now in the centrist camp, and a few more in the hawkish camp, um, and that that reflects the fact that that we're now entering into into a, a recovery and and more of a you know of a of a slightly more. A cycle, a, a different part of the cycle where where we're, we're, the emphasis is more on tightening. So that's quite natural, I think, that you're seeing that that shift. But I would still say the majority uh, on the governing council is, is pretty pretty dovish. So uh, any any shift in monetary policy will still be quite gradual and and cautious. Um, you know, they're not all turning into um, raving hawks overnight. But right. that, I would say there are three, broadly three camps. So, I mean, it's not fair to just split them into hawks and doves. There are, there are a kind of growing number, I would say, who are, who are more on the fence and 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 pro, and and therefore can be swayed by strong arguments from the likes of Philip Lane, Isabel Schnabel, um, and, and others. Um, you know, p perhaps um, Joachim Nagel, the new head of the Bundesbank, who's a new voice in, in the governing council, may uh, now, given the more hawkish direction of sentiment, may be able to sway more people over to his uh, side of the argument. Right. It also means that they're going to become perhaps more data dependent. And um, because if you're on the fence, you may be also swayed by what's actually happening on the ground over time. Now, one thing that's very important, you mentioned that at the beginning of the podcast is country spreads. You mentioned the lapses that uh, President Lagarde initially had at the start of her tenure about that. So there's obviously a lot of focus on country spreads because it, it's part of keeping the Eurozone together. Uh, now, how much do you think um, does this play a role uh, in setting monetary policy in in how much inflation developments affect the path of policy going forward. Is that, that sort of a, do you think that is a sort of a constraint that enacts, you know, itself on the interest rate path? Or is that something that could be dealt with other programs or sort of sort of can be kept out of, of that discussion? 
I don't think it's kept out of the discussion entirely. And in fact, as a result of the new strategy that the gov- that the ECB adopted last year, they, they have explicitly said that they will take financial stability considerations into account when setting monetary policy. They've also made it pretty clear um, over the course of this crisis that um, preserving, as they call it, the transmission mechanism is is key to, for monetary policy. Uh, that is a, is a it, how do you define that? What what when do you when do you decide that the monetary policy transmission mechanism is 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 disrupted sufficiently that the ECB has to intervene is unclear. But I think it's when you know when you see uh, that uh, there is you know real stress in in the the bond markets of certain countries compared to others. So you know, um, and we saw that to 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 some extent in in March two thousand and twenty, when that which was the last time that sp- spreads in you know between Italian, particularly Italian, um, uh, ten year bond yield and, and, and the Bund, uh, the German Bund yield widened quite, um, quite aggressively. Um, I think, I think though that their tolerance for, for that kind of um, concern is different depending on the economic conditions. And I think now that we are in a recovery, also now we have um, fairly strong support from fiscal policy, particularly the next generation EU, which is, um, as you know, um, providing uh, raising raising um, money from from the centre uh, and and providing it out to to countries, um, uh, providing support from 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 the EU to, to countries is 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 an important symbolic symbolically important move, which. Uh, should keep um, spreads from blowing out to the levels that we saw in the 2012-2013 financial crisis. Um, the other thing to mention is um, that, you know, they, when it comes to asset purchases, they do clearly consider um, levels of net issuance by um, governments uh, when setting asset purchases. That's becoming less relevant now um, because they're in the process of probably going to wind down their asset purchases. So, um, but previously they had said that explicitly, Philip Lane said it um, a couple of times that, you know, when setting the amount of, uh, the the amount of uh, asset purchases that they were planning to do, they would take into account net issuance uh, um, by governments. So, so they they do they do look at these things. It's not fair to say that they don't consider them, but clearly they are sensitive to accusations of monetary financing um, and and would reject those and say that you know their primary mandate is clearly price stability and and they that that's what they will act and they will not allow concerns about government uh, finances to get in the way of of of, of addressing their primary mandate. So if I were to try a summary of all what you've said, uh, so communication, yeah, <laughs> communication, you think it, it has improved under Lagarde, but also there's room for improvement. You, you suggested um, publication of dot plots would, would help, and I, I would certainly agree with that. In terms of who to listen to, well, listen to everyone, but the board members are obviously 
somewhat at the vanguard in terms of formulating the view, uh, in particular uh, Lane and Schnabel. And, and you were not surprised by the hawkish pivot in January, given the data. So you, you think you have a reasonably good understanding of their reaction function, uh, and certainly generator, the data were pointing to some, some change. Um, whether they are behind the curve making a policy mistake, as you said, who knows, that's damn difficult. But the ECB realized that it was behind the curve and that and you like the, the, the guidance they're giving, the, those criteria in terms of when actually the first rate hike will come. In terms of national bias, potential national bias, you, you don't really see that. I mean, to some extent is expected, but clear examples of people who are going against these potential bias or, or, or against the stereotypes. And fiscal considerations, transmission of monetary policy is key. That means also that obviously the fiscal side enters the picture. But as you said at the end, uh, in the uh, inflation developments uh, rule supreme here that uh, you don't think that uh, fiscal considerations would be uh, preventing any hike if the, the inflation outlook were clearly asking for that. Did I make? Is that a fair summary? Yeah, I, I I do think the ECB's role is complicated by the incomplete state of uh, eurozone um, of the eurozone uh, economy, and 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 particularly um, you know the, the the incomplete nature of of banking union, and also the fact that there are. 19 different fiscal policies that that does complicate their task compared to say the federal reserve or, or the bank of england and and so it's something they do need to to consider um and it, it is uh, you know i did I, i'm not saying that they they ignore it um i i, I gave several examples of of how they do they do consider it but i i, I think that at the end of the day they they will um they, they will uh, tread carefully um, and they will try not to cause shocks uh, to, to bond markets that would, would you know, raise the spectre of another uh, financial type crisis. But I think they're helped on that by, by fiscal policy. I think they're helped by next generation EU. And I think that, that, that they're hoping that it'll be different this time. Famous last words. But um, that they're, they're hoping that, you know, the last time we came out of the crisis was that fiscal policy was in was in you know we, we were in austerity mode and, and there was a you know a, a massive tightening going on of, of fiscal policy which so the ecb was the only game in town and they had to they had to pull out all the stops to try and prevent the the, the, the crisis from from basically destroying the euro so that was pretty dramatic i, I don't see that at the moment now i, I don't i don't, I don't seriously hear many people suggesting that that's where we're heading just because the ECB is going to stop buying bonds. But who knows? I mean, this 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 pandemic is is un, unprecedented. Uh, it, everything seems to be in fast forward because everything seems to be happening so quickly in terms of the massive crisis that we had, you know, a record post-war recession. And then suddenly we've, we've got record levels of, of growth and, and we're seeing, you know, from uh, from sub-zero levels of, of, of inflation, so deflation for several months, now up to record levels of inflation. I mean, it's all happening so much faster than in previous crises. And who knows what the st new steady state of the economy is going to be once the dust settles on this 
crisis. And then you throw in things like the Ukraine crisis, it just makes it very difficult to predict where we're heading. Um, and so I do have a lot of sympathy with um, with the poor folk at the ECB who are trying to make sense of all of this. And, and, I, and I, I'm, you know, I'm, I am um, largely um, impressed by, by the way that they are trying to deal with it. I'm, I'm sure there's more material for future podcasts here. And we might, we'll come back to you on that, Martin. Thanks again for joining us It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much.